Grab your Bibles, and we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1 this morning. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14 is where we're going to be in God's Word. So we reach now our fourth week walking through the book of Colossians, this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church there, church that was probably the least significant of all the churches that Paul writes to, and Paul perhaps never met them and probably certainly did not meet them before the writing of this letter, and yet we see great love of the Apostle to these Brothers and sisters in Christ, let's pick up in verse 9 and we'll read through verse 14. This is a, a prayer by Paul. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This ends the reading of God's holy and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God, may it stand forever. I was expressing to my wife this week um, a little bit of frustration with Paul at his insensitivity to pastors. I felt like this prayer was theological buckshot. By that I mean, you know, when you have buckshot, it just kind of sprays everywhere and covers a significant ground. And in five verses, Paul lays out for us about seven or eight evidences of the Christian life. He lays out for us three blessings of the gospel and two foundational prayers for that undergird all of these other requests. I felt like it was a little unfair to those of us who are trying to clearly articulate God's word to have to tackle that many things in one week. And so I was annoyed with Paul. Uh, But we will seek this morning to walk through the buckshot of sorts as Paul jumps and appears from one thing to another. But there are two themes that if you study and look at this passage, two things that seem to undergird and to be the focus of Paul's prayer here. Two words in particular. The first word is this, it's knowledge. And the second word is power. Now to give us a little bit of context as to why Paul would use these two particular words is that if you remember when we gave the overview of this book of Colossians, that the reason why it appears, the the occasion why Paul is writing this book, is that there are false teachers who have entered into the church, and they have come proclaiming to the church of Colossae that they need, that they are wonderful Christians, and that's great, but in order to be really great Christians, they need new knowledge, and they need special power that would come from various traditions and worship practices and, and new revelations from angels. And so Paul is actually in this prayer doing what many of us do in prayer. We, instead of talking to God, we kind of talk to other, other people in the room, don't we? 
You ever had this experience where you're sitting at the, I do this all the time, it seems like, at the end of my sermons, in which I almost use my prayer as a review of the sermon. What did I not quite get to hit? I've got to hit it in the closing prayer, in which he is giving a message in the prayer. And there's actually not necessarily anything wrong to that. He's actually praying to God, but our prayers in a corporate sense are for the blessings of those around us. And so that is a value. And so Paul articulates for us and walks us back through Paul's prayer for the church of Colossae, for their knowledge and power in the Lord. So let's walk through each of those. First part of the sermon, really actually the first three quarters of it, we'll focus on Paul's prayer asking for the knowledge of God to come to the people of Colossae. And because there is a kind of rattling off so many of these little phrases by Paul, we'll go through them almost one by one uh, as we walk through this. So we start with knowledge, and it begins there with this request May you be filled with the knowledge of the will of God. May you be filled with the knowledge of the will of God. And one of the frustrating aspects of reading Paul is that he uses no words that you don't understand. None of the words here, filled, knowledge, will of God, none of them are words that you've never heard of. But the combination of all of them together, you end up going, okay, I should know what that means, but I don't know what it means. That's actually kind of confusing, Paul. So let me, I'm going to say the same summary statement here. I'm going to explain it for the next couple of minutes and come back to the summary statement as to what Paul is communicating in this line. I think it's going to be up on the screen, this summary. Paul is praying that not only would we know the will of God, a knowledge we already possess intellectually. I forgot to put this in there. We possess it intellectually through the scriptures but that we would experience the fullness of the knowledge of the will of God, which means that we experience God's will as the controlling influence in our lives. So let's walk through this verse or word by word. I'm actually going to skip filled and jump right to knowledge. So I'm going to walk through this and then come back to that summary statement, hopefully explaining and articulating what is going on and what is behind that definition there. Knowledge. Paul prays that they would have knowledge of the will of God. We want to be filled with knowledge, but to understand what Paul is saying, we have to understand, first and foremost, what his knowledge is pointing at. The knowledge of what? Now, this knowledge points to two things. First, it tells us the object of the knowledge, which is going to be the will of God, which we'll look at in just a second. But also, this word knowledge, Paul is telling us about the scope of what he is wanting and what he's praying for us. The word here, the word in Greek for knowledge is gnosis. G-N-O-S-I-S. Gnosis. It's knowing, having intellectual understanding of, or even beyond an experiential understanding. But that is not the word that Paul necessarily uses here, or the entirety of the word. Paul prays here, and this word, and for this word knowledge, it's the word epigenosis. Epi is the prefix meaning comprehensive, or complete, or full. Paul wants for the Colossian believers to have a complete knowledge of the will of God. Now again, to connect this to what, the context of what is going on, that there are false teachers who have shown up into Colossae, and they're saying, that's great that you have the knowledge of Jesus Christ, but you need more knowledge. We need to give you extra teaching, extra biblical teaching. But Paul is coming and saying, no, 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 no. My prayer for you is that you would have the complete knowledge of God's will that's already articulated to you. So that's the word knowledge. Now let's get to what it points to, the knowledge of something, knowledge of the will of God. Now before I kind of jump into what he's saying here, let me take this explanation from a negative standpoint first. 
often when you and I hear this term will of God or God's will, we normally think of this sense of going to God in prayer and asking God to reveal to us his will for our lives. Isn't that how we often, if you're a college student, this is a, right, a, a question that you're constantly asking, particularly as you come to the near the end of college or the various significant decisions that you're making. Is it God's will that I date this person, that I marry this person, that I go ahead and graduate now? Is it God's will that I take this job or do I go to a master's program? This is the question that we are consistently asking. We want to know God's will for our lives. But I think that's a very dangerous concept, and I think we actually misunderstand it when we ask it that way. Asking God to show us his will for our lives. I actually had one seminary professor named Bruce Walkey who wrote a book called, it was called Finding the Will of God, colon, a pagan notion. And it is. This idea of finding God's will, of divining what God wants for me to do next, is a pagan idea where you come and make sacrifices and use Ouija boards and all kinds of things to know what happens next. But God has not given us a crystal ball. God has given us his words. D.A. Carson says this. He's a famous uh, biblical scholar about, talking about the will of God. He says, very frequently we are inclined to use the expression, the will of God, to refer to God's will for my vocation or some aspect of my future, that is determined by an impending choice I have to make. We seek the Lord's will over whom we should marry, over major purchases, over what church to attend when we move to a new city. Now this focus, though, he says, is quite misleading and perhaps even dangerous, for it encourages us to think of the Lord's will primarily in terms of our own wants and needs. It is not, even by the very, we violate even the very request it's, almost, it's always very self-centered. Lord, show me your will for my life. But actually, we neglect the very words that we're saying. Who is supposed to be the center? God is. And often we make it primarily about ourselves. But not only that, and much, much more than that, is that when we seek to ask the Lord to give us his will, we are actually rejecting and ignoring the place in which he has given us his will. And that is his the scriptures. God has articulated to us rather clearly what his will for our lives is. And that is to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's God's will for your life. To obey him and to obey his commandments. The scripture assumes that we have the will of God. Psalm 143 verse 10 says this, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. The psalmist here is assuming something. He does not encourage us to find God's will, for he assumes we already know God's will as it's revealed to us in God's law and God's commandments to us. He is rather more concerned about how to apply God's will. He doesn't want to teach, you don't need to teach me what your will is for my life, but help me to do your will is the concern here. We know God has a plan for our life. That's wonderful, isn't it? God has a wonderful plan for our life, but often when we ask him to reveal to us his will for our lives, we're treating him like a crystal ball in which we say, God, will you just please reveal to me what's going to happen next so I can make a really good decision in light of what's going to happen next. But this is divination. And often what this is, is our supposed longing to know and know the will of God for our lives is really a rejection of seeking to live a life of trust. God, would you just give me the answer? Would you just just tell me what's next? I don't want to actually have to make bold decisions based on your commandments. 
and then live out in light of that and trust that you're going to provide as I make these decisions. Obsessing over the future is not how God has called Christians to live. God has called us to obsess over his commandments and to live in light of those things. His way of revealing his, his will to us is through his word and his word completely. All right. So that's the will of God, knowledge of the will of God. But then we got to go back to the beginning where it says, uses this term, filled with. We talk, seeing what it is that we want to be filled with. But what does that term to be filled with mean? That is a confusing terminology, isn't it? To be filled with the knowledge of the will of God. To be filled by something, though, means that it takes over your life. That it is the controlling mechanism of your life. Some of you, like me in college... Your life, there was all kinds of things that controlled your life. And then you got a girlfriend, and she filled your life. And all your friends said, uh, that girl's controlling your life. She is now the significant and only influence in your life. When you drink too much alcohol, what controls your life? When you are filled with wine or beer or liquor of some sorts, what is going on there? You are being controlled and influenced. It becomes the way, the controlling influence in the way you see the world as it comes towards you, the way you react to it, and the, your behaviors in it. Therefore, when we say we want to be filled with the knowledge of the will of God, or when Paul prays that for us, what that means is that Paul wants the controlling influence of our life, the thing all-encompassing passion of our life, is to do God's will, God's commandments. Therefore, I come to my summary statement again. We come back to it. Paul is praying that not only will we know the will of God, a knowledge that we already possess intellectually through his word, but that we would experience the fullness of the knowledge of the will of God, (coughs) which means that we experience God's will as the controlling influence in our lives. This is incredibly important. False teachers are saying, you need to be filled with Jesus with the knowledge of Jesus, the knowledge of God's word, plus the special knowledge that we're going to provide for you. But Paul is saying that we already have the knowledge of the will of God, and it is sufficient. In other words, what he's saying is, you have all the knowledge you need, now you need to use it in order to be filled up with it. It needs to be the things through which it controls your life. Another professor of mine from seminary, a guy named John Frame, in his thesis on what systematic theology is, what theology is, he came down to this very short definition, and he said theology is application. And the reason why he said that is that, in other words, our theology, what we believe and know about God, is actually not fully known until it is lived out. What you, the way you live your life is an articulation of what you believe about God. A scientist can say, for instance, that they know how to launch a rocket and they can reveal on a piece of paper all the various theories and all the mathematics that they have to do in order to get launch a rocket into outer space. But you would say, even if all his equations are correct, you would say that that, that scientist has never actually, doesn't actually know how to launch a rocket until he has taken that mathematics and he's applied it and actually seen a rocket with his work done launched into space. We can have a knowledge of the will of God and yet actually be controlled and influenced primarily by it. And so to know God's will is to live out God's will. 
To experience it fully is to obey all that God has commanded for us. And we have been given a knowledge of God's will. You have all you need. And the call here now is to act. To many of us, because we have this faulty understanding of the will of God, is we, we don't even give attention to God's words to how we should live our life. Instead, it's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Would someone just give me the answers to what I do next? No, stop waiting for God to write something in the sky. He's already written in his word. Get into that and know it well and plead with God to make it the controlling influence of your life, the the thing on which you operate as the basis of your life. Now, one final phrase there that Paul gives us. He prays that we would be filled with the knowledge of the will of God in spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, here is what actually we should be praying about. See, if you go and ask God to, God, reveal me to me your will, hopefully the Spirit says, okay, go read your Bible. But we also should be praying for spiritual wisdom. And what spiritual wisdom is, it is the application of God's word, of God's will in our life. For instance, God has called you to love your neighbor as yourself. That is God's will for your life. That has to be an all-encompassing passion for your life is to love those around you with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then we ask the question, how do you do that? And that's where this thing called wisdom comes into play. And understand it is spiritual wisdom. So you're pleading with God. This is how our prayers should go. Prayer should, should not be so much, God, well, you should reveal to me your will, but it should go like this. God, your will for me is to love Love my neighbors as myself. And I want to experience what it is to be controlled by your commands and your will for my life. So would you now, by your spirit, help me to know how to love this person in the way that you've called me to love them? That's the prayers that we should be praying. Stop asking God to reveal his will to you and start asking God to reveal to you his wisdom by his spirit. And start asking those who are older Christians and those around you for help in that as well. It's a long-lost word, this word wisdom in Christianity. If we understood it, perhaps life would be a lot better, and perhaps our prayers would be more precise. So Paul is praying that we would be filled with the knowledge of God's will so that we might obey him and so that something may happen in our life. You may notice in verse 10, he turns the corner, and he says, fill with the knowledge of the will of God and all spiritual wisdom, so as, and then he gives us four descriptions of what it looks like to have your life controlled by the will of God. Four descriptions. We're going to run through these rather quickly. The first is this, that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord's. This simply means the pitter-patter of the Christian life. This is a theme that Paul brings up throughout the various parts of the New Testament in talking about the Christian life. He's consistently describing it as they walk. Philippians 1.27, he says, only let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel. He says the same, a similar thing in Ephesians 4.1. You see, Paul is a former rabbi. And he hasn't lost the entire vocabulary of his rabbinic days. You see, there was this book called the Hakanah, that the rabbis would take God's commandments and God's laws as it was given to them in the Old Testament, and they would seek to apply them in the way that a good Jew would live out his life. And literally what Hakanah could be, if it was a book, it would be described simply as the walk. And this is how you describe your life, right? We ask questions to one another as Christians. Hey, how's your walk? So if you're a new believer and you're somebody ask you that, you kind of want to, it's not you're like the limp that you walk with. It's your Christian life. Give you a little insight as to what we're talking about there. And Paul wants us to live a life that is worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's the, 
the truth. And we, we could do this for each of these little descriptions, but I'm going to do it for this one first and foremost, though. Is we are not worthy of the Lord's in our natural state, but he has made us worthy. Understand when Paul calls us here to live a life that is worthy of the Lord. He is not saying that you have to try to earn your worthiness before God, but he is saying in the gospel, you are right now already worthy, and now live in light of that worthiness. Live in light of who God has already declared you to be. This is not a means of trying to prove yourself to, the God, to God over and over and over again in the hopes that he will approve of you, but you, you already have been approved of. Now, with that in mind, with that power, go seek to live in light of who he is. All right, so that's the first description. The second description is this, that we will live a life fully pleasing to God. This word fully is the word plerao. It happens a number, it's used a number of times in this passage, filled. And what it means in the Greek is literally filled to overflowing, Filled to overflowing. And that was actually the most often way in which this particular word was used, and as we found in, in ancient literature, is that it was used to describe women who were very pregnant. You ever seen, seen a pregnant lady in, in third trimester? You know she's pregnant, right? I mean, she's wearing slippers because she can't bend down to tie her shoes. It is obvious. There ain't no guesswork to know about whether she is pregnant in the third trimester. Now, you better dare not say anything about it, right? But you don't have to ask any questions about it. It is obvious. And this is what Paul is saying is the way our life should look like if we are influenced. The controlling influence of our life is God's will and God's law. Is that it's obvious to everybody else around you that the great desire of your life is to please God. So let me ask you this, college student, as you walk around University of West Georgia or West Georgia Technical College, does everybody know that what you are about is pleasing Jesus Christ first and foremost? People who go to work and live and walk side by side next to other people who have cubicles of people around you, do they know that you're you're all-encompassing desires to please God? Is it obvious to them, like a woman in the third trimester is obviously pregnant? This is what Paul is saying. Parents, is it obvious to your children that the greatest thing for you is to please the Lord, to experience his pleasure? You remember Eric Little? What did he say? Everything he did was for the experience of pleasing God and for experiencing God's pleasure in that. Third, the third thing Paul describes here, though, is that we would bear fruit in every good work. We can talk about this to the cows come home, because there's all these other passages where it describes all the fruits of the spiritual life. But let me simply say this. When you live out the will of God in your life in a wise way, what will inevitably happen is you will produce fruit. You will produce fruit. You'll be kind, and you'll be loving. You'll be self-controlled, because the overall passion and influence of your life is to do God's bidding. Fourth description is that you would grow in your knowledge of God. You grow in your knowledge of God. Paul prays that we would be filled with the knowledge of the will of God. And when we're filled with the knowledge of the will of God, we grow in our knowledge of God. Now, that is very cyclical, isn't it? Almost confusing. Now, what he is showing us here, and what Paul is describing it this way, is that he is showing us that there is a moral basis to our growth in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. That there is a, that your means of knowing God better does not simply come when you open your Bible and have your devotions. Now, it certainly comes through that. But you actually also grow in your knowledge of God as you do his will in your life. 
as you obey him, Jesus says this in John 7, 17, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. In other words, what he's saying is, if you follow my will and my teachings, then you will know that I am from God. You'll learn something about me. It's the same way as we go on in the Christian life. There is a cycle in regards to our knowledge of God. God has given us a saving knowledge of him and our justification by the Spirit's work. But as we grow and develop in the Christian life, there is a process that goes with it that is cyclical. Like a tornado that moves upwards. That when we do the will of God, we then better know God. And then as we know God, we better do the will of God in our life. And back and forth we go. Therefore, if you want to live a life that is worthy of the Lord, if you want to please God, if you want to bear fruit, and if you want to know your Savior, then may the will of God be the all-encompassing, influencing control in your life. That's what Paul is saying. God's call in your life must be the pervading passion through which you see when you get up in the morning, it's God, I want to walk with you, and I want to do your bidding. Would you fill me with that desire? And would you help me in wisdom by your spirit to to live it out? So Paul prays that the Colossians would be controlled by their knowledge of God's will. But now Paul also prays another thing too, doesn't he? It's maybe, both in the first verse where he says, begins to pray, I pray that you may have the knowledge, be filled with the knowledge. And then in verse 11 now, he prays about our power. May you be strengthened with all power. So let's walk through power as well. This prayer for our power in the Christian life. May you be strengthened with all power. Listen, there's no words here in this phrase that can be misunderstood, right? We understand what power is and what strength is. And there's nothing really truly confusing about this. The knowledge of God's will leads to a life that is pleasing to God and is bearing fruit for God. But Paul is also concerned that that as we seek to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that we would not give up. See, here's the, there's an interplay and there's a connection between Paul praying for knowledge of the will of God and Paul praying for power. Paul's praying that we would have the knowledge of God's will and he's also praying that we would have the power to do it. The power to endure it, to do it, even in the midst of difficult and challenging things. May you be strengthened with all power so you can carry on this life to the end, moving through all things. And we'll talk about what those all things are in just a second. But before we get to that, this may you be strengthened with all power hits hollow until we understand where the power comes from, what the source of it is. And that's the next phrase. May you be strengthened with all power according to his, speaking of God's glorious might. Now this is an utterly, unbelievably wonderful phrase. It is, and perhaps it's the reason why Paul begins to go off here in a few verses and enters into song in verses 15 through 20 of Colossians 1. But just in case it isn't obvious why this is so incredible, is what Paul is asking here is that our strength, that the power in our lives would be according to the power of God. Now that word according is, is, is important there to help us understand that. It means corresponding to, or in proportion in, or to relation to something. That something is God's power. And so what he would say is, as you have a relationship with God, may you be strengthened with what? The very power of God. Now, this is totally different than our weak prayers. Our prayers almost sound like 
they're nasally and whiny. Laura, would you just get them through? By the hair of their chinny-chin-chin, would you just give them enough of an inkling of energy to get through the day? But this is not what Paul prays for them. He says, what you have been filled with and what I want for you is that you would know the very power of the divine one at work within you. Now, that's some serious power. See, what he's asking for is that the power of the one whose finger brought all things into creation would be at work within us. The one who can end kingdoms with a word. The one who even in his veiled humanity, veiling all of his glory, still in the Son of God, could still, with a word, call someone out from the dead and calm the storms. This is the power that is now at work within you. We are not sniveling little people. Now listen. I think there is a great emphasis in the church, and I think in this church, and I bring this emphasis, which is as Christians in living out authentic Christian life, is we confess often our weakness. We confess often how how difficult life is, that we confess and, and share with one another the burdens and the brokenness that we experience in our life. But we do so in order that together we may run to the Lord of the universe. And when you run to the Lord of the universe, it is not for just simply a hug of comfort. He gives that. But the reason why it's comforting when you run to God is that as the scriptures describe, he is a mountain of strength. That when you go to him in prayer, when you go to him with your weaknesses, that he doesn't simply say, there, there, there. But as you run into his bosom, you feel the might of his arms. You get to know the one who called all things into creation with words. And then you get to hear the whisper of him saying, I live inside of you. The power that you sense in me now lives inside of you. Now go live in light of it. Listen, we should authentically communicate and confess that we are indeed weak people. But that should lead us to run to the one who is infinitely powerful, omnipotently powerful, which is redundant. But he calls us to this, and the reason why Paul wants us to have power to live out this life, and he says there's two descriptions, four, living out in a certain way. Four, two two descriptions here, four, endurance and patience. What is endurance? I don't have time to jump into this very very long, but endurance is simply the the willingness, the ability to endure, to be able to live out and live through, to live a life worthy of the Lord, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. This is like the seed that the sower throws out, that you actually, when the sun comes up and things get hot and life gets difficult, that you still bear fruit, that you still please the Lord, that even in your suffering, even when things are financially tight, even when life is very, very hard, you live in a life, a life worthy of the Lord. That's endurance. It has to do with our circumstances when we're living in a difficult and hard place. But then he also asks for patience. Patience is very similar. But patience is the request to live with self-restraint with people who cross you. With people who are difficult. Now, I don't know about you. The Christian life would be really, really great if it wasn't for all these other people. I could live... I talked about this with my sisters, right? I was a really compliant kid, and then God brought me sisters, and they sat there, and they incited my sinful needs and desires all the time. I would clearly walk in a manner, or think I could walk in a manner worthy of the Lord if no one else was here to bother me. 
What Paul is praying for here is that we would endurance in the Lord and what the gospel brings in living out life in apparent, very impossible situations and also living out a life that is pleasing to the Lord when we're dealing with the very impossible people in our lives. That should be your prayer. If you're asked that, man, you, you have the kid who just drives you insane. College students, you've got a parent that is, they, they probably are awful. They probably are difficult. Are you praying for God's power? You need God's power in those moments, God's strength. You see, it takes strength to extend forgiveness. It takes strength to ask for forgiveness. It takes strength when you're enduring suffering in this life to continue to live out your life for the Lord. But then he also gives another description. So you live with endurance because of this power. You live with patience with other people because of this power. But then it describes, also he says, giving thanks or joyfully giving thanks. Now in the ESV, it gives it in a way that I don't, I don't think is actually quite correct. At least I would interpret this way. Both the NIV and the NASB describe, use this word joy to give description to their thanksgiving. That, Paul, that they have endurance and patience with joyful, giving joyful thanksgiving to the Lord. Joyfully giving thanks. It is the thing that modifies and describes their endurance and their patience. The power of God in us leads us to endure all of life's sufferings and difficult circumstances with joyful thanksgiving. That's what it's saying. It's also saying the power of God strengthens us to be patient with other people with joyful thanksgiving. Giving thanks to the Lord. The foundation of your endurance and the foundation of your patience and the greatest display that God's power is at work within you is that you joyfully give thanks in all circumstances. You want to know if God's power is at work in you, if you have strength in your life from the Lord, are you giving thanks to him for all of his goodness to you? Now, what is it? What is it that leads to the power of God within us? What leads to this joyful thanksgiving? We've got to look to the source. What is it that we are to be thankful for? What does he say? How can we have joyful thanksgiving and endurance and joyfully have patience? And how can we have this great power displayed in our lives? Let me see, read you two verses and let's see if you can figure it out. I don't think this is going to be on the screen. Romans 1.16, it says this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross is the power of God to us, and it is the power of God in us right now. The gospel, that is exactly where Paul points. He points there in Romans. He points there in 1 Corinthians, and he points here in Colossians. He's quite consistent, don't you think? And here what he's, here, here's how he articulates the gospel, that we are to give thanks for this. Picking up in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Three beautiful gospel declarations that Paul says that we are to be thankful for here. That are to be the the undergirding of all thanksgiving in our life and all power in our life. Three declarations, and they're this. First, that the Father has qualified you. Second, that the Father has delivered you. And third, that the Father has transferred you. 
Now we're going to round the corner to the close this morning and head to the table here in just a second. But in true nerdy fashion, let's round the, t- the corner with some grammar. All three of these words, qualified, delivered, and transferred, are all in what in the Greek, what would be described as the aorist tense. It's the closest thing we have in the Greek to being clearly what we would call the past tense. Which means this, you have already been qualified. You have already been delivered. You have already been transferred. You have been qualified. It is done. When we talk about being qualified, it means to be sufficient and to be enough. Right? When someone posts a job, a job description in which they're taking applicants, there are qualifications to receive that job. Now, what is the job that we said says here, at least in our, our text here today, that we are applying for? You're qualified for an inheritance. So who gets an inheritance? Children, sons, and daughters. In other words, God has posted a job. And the application says this, the qualification is to be a son and daughter of God. And you and I would say we are not qualified, but through Jesus Christ we have been made qualified. That the true and perfect son has qualified you and me to be called sons and daughters, so we take up that task. We've been qualified for it. Second, we've been delivered, and it's done. Your deliverance is complete. The scriptures in describing our life in sin describes us as being in bondage to sin and living in the kingdom of the devil. That's grave, and that's a problem, right? Other places it says it describes us as children of wrath, that we are deserving of God's wrath to be poured out upon us. And when you live and when you're enslaved, when you're, all, when you're in dominion of someone else, what you need is you need to be rescued, right? You need to be ransomed. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. You see, there was a rescue mission. It was carried out, and it is done. It is finished. And we as hostages to sin and to the devil and to his control in this world, we are free. You see, we've also been transferred in the great rescue mission of Jesus on the cross, it wasn't, it wasn't that Jesus, like a Navy SEAL or a flies in as a special operations person on a helicopter, flies into, a, into enemy territory, and he comes in, and he, he snags us up, and he delivers us. And it's not that then what he does is then goes and drops us into a spiritual no man's land. That's not what he does. And this is really significant for your Christian life. Jesus did not come to deliver you so that you can then be dropped into spiritual no man's land and then he hopes that you will find your way into his kingdom. No, your salvation is one in which you are perfectly qualified now, you are delivered, and then the helicopter is taking you fully into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It is where you reside even now. The Christian life is not us wandering around hoping we can make it into Jesus' kingdom. You are there and you are part of his kingdom today. You have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and it is past tense. So live like it. And here's what Paul is saying, is that you give joyful thanksgiving if this would be on your mind and your heart, if you would meditate on this, and to the degree that you love this and take joy in the fact that even now you are qualified, even now you are delivered, even now you reside in the kingdom of Jesus. The degree that you get that, then you will be empowered to live a life of endurance and patience. So, Christians, stand up. Sweet saint who's seeking to live a life worthy of the Lord, who studies your Bible to know God's will for your life. Would you stand up 
Would you take courage? Would you endure tough relationships and tough circumstances because all that Christ has done for you, to the degree that you get that, you'll live a life of joy and thanksgiving. Let's pray, and let's go to the table. Those of you who are serving, if you'd come forward. Let me pray for us and set aside the elements, the bread and the juice or the wine. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we come to remember. And as you call this in your scriptures, the Eucharisto, the celebration of what you have done for us. I pray that as we come here today and we celebrate, that you would fill our hearts with joy. And with that joy, you would give us power to go back into a life and to endure with righteousness, to love others with holiness, and to live a life that's pleasing to you. We ask that. Lord, I pray that you would use these elements, the simple bread and a simple juice that represents your body broken for us and your blood shed for us to wash us clean. But I pray, Lord, even as we, we remember this morning that your spirit would go out and you would use these, that it would be a spiritual grace to us to empower us, to encourage us for our Christian walk. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.